How do you do, Mr. Gutman? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Air Read This. My name's Ash, and today we're looking at The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. Uh, before we get into it, I'm afraid we had some slight technical issues when we recorded this session, um, and Adam's mic seemed to be either turned off or not working. It's not too bad, you can still hear him, but it does sound a bit like he's talking over my shoulder, so I'm sorry about that. Luckily, he is the naturally louder of the two of us, so you can, you can still hear him, it just sounds a bit weird. So, apologies. Um, now, The Maltese Falcon is considered a landmark novel in hard-boiled detective fiction. Originally serialised in the Black Mask magazine in 1929, it was published in full form in the following year. The story is a sleazy parody of a grail quest, with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells all trying to track down the titular Black Bird, the Maltese Falcon, a priceless artefact with an extraordinary history. Its motley hunters include the enigmatic, untrustworthy Bridget O'Shaughnessy, the fat crook Casper Gutman, the silky, aromatic Joel Cairo, and eventually the private detective Samuel Spade, who despite being our protagonist, is far from simply heroic. The Maltese Falcon contains many of the grace notes of the hard-boiled detective genre, which sprang up as a reaction against the cosier, gentle murder novels of writers like Agatha Christie. Hammett, said Raymond Chandler, took murder out of the Venetian vase and dropped it in the alley. So, well, let's start with our traditional question of when did you first come across Dashiell Hammett and or the Maltese Falcon? Uh, It was my dad, actually. um, I think when I was a kid we would listen to audiobooks on long car journeys and we listened to a lot of um uh peter whimsey peter whimsey dorothy l sayers oh sort of british golden age crime and of of the very cozy kind he was Mm. sort of very sort of landed elite style gentleman detective who would poirot style bumble his way into situations and then solve the mystery yeah and everything was very gentle and very nice even though the crimes were brutal Mm. it's all very gentle and i think i expressed an interest in detective stories and stuff and he gave me Dash your hammer and said I think he's the best one. Oh really? Yeah. So I was probably about 12 or 13. Mm. And I I read Dash your hammer before I read Raymond Chandler. Which is I think yeah, I think I, I don't know if that's the normal way round. Well, that's interesting because I no I I did it the other way around. And Raymond Chandler seems like he's read Dash your hammer. Oh yeah, I think um Dash your hammer probably well, I think we can talk about the Maltese Falcon, which is what we're talking about. And I think that most of the cliches of of detective stories going onwards can be pulled from, or at least spotted in Maltese Falcon. One thing that I that, that I noticed with with both Chandler, Chandler is is always seems like he's balancing on the fence of is he doing a detective novel or taking the piss out of one. Yeah. And I actually thought Dashiell, in my head, Dashiell Hammett um, was the type of author that Raymond Chandler was maybe spoofing. Sure. But then, like, even the first paragraph of The Maltese Falcon seems like it might be doing the same thing. Samuel Spade's jaw was long and bony, his chin a jutting V under the more flexible V of his mouth. His nostrils curved back to make another, smaller V. His yellow-grey eyes were horizontal. The V motif was picked up again by thickish brows rising outward from twin creases above a hook's nose and his pale brown hair grew down from high flat temples in a point on his forehead. 
He looks rather pleasantly like a blonde Satan. It is, it is interesting. Is Hard Boiled itself a parody? Mm. And I don't know, quite frankly. I think that it may be so sincere that it just opens itself up to parody. Yeah. The, the thing about uh, the, all of his uh, face being Vs, he's a, and the description of him as a pleasant blonde Satan, immediately puts you kind of... Uh, he doesn't seem that cool. He doesn't see. He's just odd. Yeah. Like it's a. It's an odd kind. It's, it does read like the kind of thing, like you're writing a sketch and then you've decided to take the piss out of yourself on the fourth yeah. line. Hammett produced five novels in his career in a relatively short, enormously productive burst between 1929 and 1934. His health and state of affairs in later life hampered his ability to write. Catching Spanish flu during his service in World War One led, led to him contracting tuberculosis. His links to communists got him blackballed in Hollywood and the Internal Revenue Service uh, forced him to pay $140,000 in back taxes. His death in poverty in 1961 is blamed on these personal disasters and his 40-year struggle with tuberculosis. According to Hammett, the character of Sam Spade had no original. He is a dream man in the sense that he is what most of the private detectives I worked with would like to have been and what quite a few of them in their cockier moments thought they approached. A hard and shifty fellow, able to take care of himself in any situation, able to get the best of anybody he comes in contact with, whether criminal, innocent bystander or client. Despite Hammett's claim that Spade had no original, Oscar Handel has written that it was no coincidence that the author gave the first name he himself had discarded to his best-known hero. Dashiell was in fact Hammett's middle name, and his first first name was Samuel. So what's the... um? What are the what are the case notes on this one? What's the what's the um what's the outline? What's the plot? So we've got Sam Spade, who with his partner Archer, yep. um, are running a detective agency. Yep, as uh, you apparently could do back in the day. And a woman called Ruth Wonderly saunters into his office and says that her sister's yeah. been kidnapped. Yes. And which is actually exactly the same way that um, Big Sleep starts. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, and so James Archer, his partner, goes on the case, but ends up shout. And so Sam Spade quite dispassionately goes and sees the body and then sets off in this case where he winds up looking for this uh, this falcon. This, this little, little statue. Yeah. Of, of value. Covered in black something. Yeah. Very satisfying. It's a, it's a jeweled falcon, which we get the whole richly patterned history of. Covered in kind of black, I don't know what you'd call it. Was it obsidian or not? Yeah. yeah, to hide the fact that it's so jewel encrusted and precious. Um, and it's been passed around since the days of the Knights Templar. Yes. Um, and wound up in the hands of, is it some German guy? And yeah, yeah. Well, there's the kind of there's the Constantinople's mentioned. So I think that yeah, this it's got a very it's got a very Indiana Jones Raiders of the Last Crusade yeah feel to it. But no, it's um, it is a classic. It's a it's a, it's a MacGuffin. It's, mm. it's the classic MacGuffin. It's a it's a jewel encrusted falcon, <laughs> yeah, of, of value, and that's what everybody's killing each other for. And it's funny that it's given so much time. Like it's given several pages are given to its, uh, it's um, where its whereabouts yeah. and its history. Raymond Chandler emphasizes that Hammett was among those who wrote and tried to write realistic mystery fiction. I doubt that Hammett had any deliberate artistic aims, whatever. 
He was trying to make a living by writing something he had first-hand information about. He made some of it up, all writers do, but it had a basis in fact. It was made up out of real things. And indeed, the novel has a cinematic feel, common for many mystery novels, which depend on drawing your attention to physical detail, sometimes extensively. Take, for instance, this description of Gutman and see if you pick up on what sort of size he might be. The fat man was flabbily fat, with bulbous pink cheeks and lips and chins and neck, with a great soft egg of a belly that was all his torso, and pendant cones for arms and legs. As he advanced to meet Spade, all his bulbs rose and shook and fell separately with each step, in the manner of clustered soap bubbles not yet released from the pipe through which they had been blown. His eyes, made small by fat puffs around them, were dark and sleek. He held out a hand like a fat pink star. Some moments in the novel seem microscopically blocked, such as this. Spade laughed a harsh syllable, ha, and went to the buff-curtained window. He stood there with his back to her, looking through the curtain into the court until she started towards him. Then he turned quickly and went back to his desk. He sat down, put his elbows on the desk, his chin between his fists, and looked at her. At times we take in enormous chunks of data from quite innocuous moments, almost as if we can't turn off the detective's instincts. And from others we come away with many more questions than answers. It's easy to see why this novel lent itself to film, but the one thing you can't put on film is a blind spot, and Hammett is adept at applying black lacquer in all the right places. Not just physical clues, but clues to character, to behaviour. He recognises that plot is decoration to great literature and not the other way round. No one would reread the Maltese falcon for the falcon. The bird is supposed to wing itself away from our fingers. What is memorable about Hammett's novel is the mysterious ways his detective responds to the world, and the uncertainty and volatility of seemingly every relationship in the story. So you've watched the film, I actually haven't. Oh, God, it's such a good film. Yeah? Yeah, it's got, um, got some real faces in it. One thing I, I did notice is that um, Bogart looks nothing like Sam Spade. I think they just wanted a famous Hollywood face in yeah. the classic role. Because Sam Spade's kind of Aryan, isn't he? I think he's, he's, he's sort of supposed to be of that type. Mm. That, um, Philip, his Philip, eyes burn yellowly at one point, I yeah. know that. Philip, Philip Marlowe is definitely supposed to be a bit of a schlub, a schlub in a bad tie. Yeah. But, no, I think I think Sam Spade is supposed to be a sort of Dick Tracy style mm. crime fighter in the sense that you know, he isn't he isn't a washed up old sap just yet. But he's a bastard. Yeah, he's, he's an absolute bastard. Part of the appeal of Spade seems to be connected to the similarity he has to us. He's excited by plot developments, more like a reader than a participant. He seems at times to take an almost sexual pleasure in his work. He stopped smiling. His upper lip on the left side twitched over his eye tooth. His eyes became narrow and sultry. He enjoys Bridget's performance even though he doesn't really trust her. Instead of calling her out at once, he lets things move along, apparently as eager to be surprised as any reader of mystery fiction. The most revealing thing he says about himself is a seemingly unconnected parable about a man with the Dickensian name of Flitcraft. Flitcraft was a man who fled his nice safe life after a falling beam nearly killed him. Instead of returning home, Flitcraft moved moved state and set up a new life, becoming a better husband and father to his second family. But that's the part of it I always liked, says Sam Spade. He adjusted himself to beams falling, and then no more of them fell, and he adjusted himself to them not falling. I mean, the thing that keeps the story going, really, is trying to figure out what his angle is. Mm -hmm. Because he listens to things, he listens to testimonies from, um, what does she call herself at first, the dame, Ruth Wonderly? Well, that's... uh, Uh, That's the given name at first. 
Oh, what's it, what her real name is? Or? Yeah, no, it's O'Shaughnessy, I oh, think is the, the last one. Yeah. Bridget, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Like but the first name is Ruth Wonderly. Yeah. And it seems like when he listens to her or he listens to Gutman's testimony, okay. he doesn't believe them for a second, no. but he, get, he, in, he indulges them. Is it out of kind of wanting to see how it goes, messing with them, boredom? It's so laconic and hard to sort of get a read on what he wants. Yeah. Which that, I think is an un- unreliable narrator. Like, he, he's either quite thick, mm. which is not consistent with how he is everywhere else, or it's written in such a way as it can be read twice. Uh-huh. Once as a sort of blank detective taking everything that's being um, said at uh-huh. face value, or completely disbelieving it but going along with it just because... Every character except Spade seems like they're trying and often failing to keep calm. Cairo cracks and falls to pieces more than once. The young honcho Wilma lets Spade dig under his skin. Bridget is always on the edge of lavish and perhaps feigned hysterics. But when Spade dwells, his face becomes stupid in its calmness. We are not given high hopes for a brilliant Holmesian style deduction. He seems almost cavalier in his lack of nerves. In this world where it pays to be twitchy, he seems suicidally laid back. Without the window into the detecting process, we must play detective ourselves, something suggested early on. When we read that Miles, Spade's partner, was apparently as many years past 40 as Spade was past 30. Apparently? Apparently to whom? Why not just tell us? Why this rather folksy smoke and mirrors? Why not just say that Miles was older? Sentences like this ensure that while Spade is the protagonist, we are not quite permitted to work with him. We must instead shadow him, take his lead, and occasionally try to decipher his stupid calm. But, well, is he a Pinkerton detective? I think uh, Pinkertons were union breakers. Yeah. They were barely even detectives. They were just thugs. Thugs who busted up unions. Thugs with fake police badges. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I don't remember if he is or not, but I think the idea that you could just set up in business as a detective yeah, and just put detective on your door and people would come to you with problems. It's quite interesting. Uh, they weren't just thugs. They they were after, they chased like Jesse James, Butch yeah. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. They were kind of like a sort of private police force. Yeah. But I think maybe Sam Spade is his own setup, like a, a proper private detective. Sure. Dashiell Hammett said of the Maltese Falcon, if this book had been written with the help of an outline or notes or even a clearly defined plot idea in my head, I might now be able to say how it came to be written and why it took the shape it did. But all I can remember about its invention is that somewhere I had read of the peculiar rental agreement between Charles V and the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, that in a short story called The Who's This Kid, I had failed to make most of a situation that I liked and that in another I had been equally unfortunate with an equally promising denouement, and that I thought I might have better luck with these two failures if I combined them with the Maltese lease in a longer story. They are, I don't know, I, I prefer Chandler in terms of readability and character and style. I prefer Chandler every time, but yeah. I can appreciate Hammond completely. And an interesting guy, so he was a Pinkerton detective, yes. um, and then had this quite Orwell-like life... Um, a lefty activist yeah. and tuberculosis. Is that what finished him off? Yeah. Well, I think he had it pretty much all his life. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Um, and he, he lived longer than Orwell, but uh, I think like late 60s he died of it. Well, he wrote, um, he wrote a 
a whole series of Sam Spade books. None of the ones I've actually read. I don't know. I have no idea if his character develops or if there's an arc across all of these books or if he does just remain like a big lump of clay the entire time. Philip Marlowe is... I just started talking about Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe is the detective in the Raymond Chandler. Yeah. He's a sort of tarnished soul with a heart of gold where he just can't help himself. Where... He, in all of his, on all the adventures, there's always a point where he could just walk away. And he never does. He always goes back in and he gets shot and beaten up. And yeah. Never does anything cruel, never saves the day. He always just sort of gets smacked over the back of the head with a cosh and then he wakes up and then things have resolved. And, yeah. yeah. Whereas Sam Spade does appear to be more sort of in control and, you know, cool dude. And he gets hit over the back of the head a couple of times. It's a very, or he gets drugged anyway. It's a very powerful narrative device when you don't know what to do. <laughs> Spade w- gets where he wants and what he wants by observing. Sometimes the smartest thing to do is to get knocked out or to keep quiet. When Spade says nothing, he says nothing in a blank-faced, definitive way. According to Frederick Burelbach, both Sam Spade and the Falcon are one, both enigmatic and slippery judges of others, both the objects of search and yet the seekers. Remember that a falcon, a bird of prey, is noted for its keen vision. Both are simultaneously good and evil, noble Samuel is a judge and prophet, falcons are royal hunting birds, and deadly. Both Spade and the falcon embody the ambiguous multiplicity of human and divine nature. I love the names. Spade, Archer. Wonderly. Wonderly. The the fat villain who is, of course, called Gutman. (laughs) Uh, um, Was it something? Joel Cairo. And uh, what's uh, the... Wilma Cook. Wilma Cook. The gunman, Wilma Cook. Yeah. No, they're... Um... And something Thursby? It's not the first Sam Spade one. Oh, is it not? Well, chronologically. Well, ah. Enough, Maltese Falcon is by far and away the most famous one because of the film. Yeah. I think it's the one... That, I think they were all of a relative success when they came out, but it was the... Maltese Falcon was the one that was made into a film and the one that stuck around. This is our first introduction to Sam Spade, who would appear four more times in the short stories A Man Called Spade, Too Many Have Lived, They Can Only Hang You Once, and A Knife Will Cut For Anybody. So tell me a bit more about the film, because I know there was a few versions before the famous one. Well, there's, um, it's one of those things where back in the day there was just not as many... I don't know, there weren't as many recognisable stories to mm. be made into films, so you just make the same one over and over again, like um, like She or Ben-Hur, mm. where you just sort of, everyone, each each movie studio would have a crack at making their own, and one would eventually stick as a classic. Yeah. Like, there was however many versions of Dracula before the universal one became the... The Dracula. The Dracula. Yes, yeah, so you've got Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, Peter Law, who's that sort of frog, that guy. That sort of the frog, the frog. Oh basically. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in um, Casablanca as the guy who gets shot right at the beginning. Yep. Sidney Greenstreet, who was also in Casablanca as the the definitely not a white man in affairs playing an international <laughs> dealer, the guy with the monkey in Casablanca. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Uh, that guy. Yep, yep. Playing Gutman. Yeah. So it it was sort of like you had your big typecast actors of the day. You had your hero, you had your patsy, and you had your your big heavy. I think it's hilarious that Humphrey Bogart played Marlowe and Sam Spade. Oh, yeah, but I think that's I think that's perfect though. Yeah. The idea that they couldn't think of anybody else cool to play <laughs> to play four characters. Well, he's a sort of Humphrey Bogart type. He's a... <laughs> Who are we gonna get? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll get uh, Frank Sinatra. We'll get Frank Sinatra. <laughs> He'll do it. Frank Sinatra had a movie career. He, he did. 
film called uh, Man with a Gold Man with a Golden Arm about a heroin addict. He was in quite a lot of films, wasn't he? Yeah, but this he did he did an amazing turn as a as a heroin addict. It's really? actually incredibly believable. Really? Yeah, he's actually quite a good actor. I've only seen him in his musical one where he's with uh Thingy, who went on and did Singing in the Rain. Oh, uh, Gene Kelly. Yeah. They did something in the like Sailors. Oh, on the town. Yeah, on the town. Uh, have you seen, you've seen Chinatown? Oh, God, yeah. Chinatown, I think, is the best detective noir ever written, put on film, whatever. Which is actually, it was a book, I think. Mm. But um, that's, the story of that one is none of the detectives in these stories ever see the full picture. They're always just sort of scraping around the edges and then maybe they get a bit too close. Mm. And then sort of at the end, you suddenly realise that it's so far above them that they never had a hope. And then they go back to drinking in their office, and that's the that's how it ends. That's really true. Yeah, the, the Maltese Falcon is just like that. He, he sort of sees like, oh god, this world forces. Yeah. On the stage here, how he gets that? told the whole story of the Maltese Falcon, but you never get the impression that he. I know he tr- he he makes a play to hang on to it himself, but he, was he sees the financial value of it. But I don't think he really gets the point, and we don't either. No. Like, why do they want or, it? So much? Why is this guy spent the Gutman? Spent so many years of his life chasing this thing. Like, you could have made that much money concentrating on something else. Like, the, the plot of Chinatown, it sort of starts off with a murder. Mm. And by the end, without spoiling too much, it sort of spirals into a sort of local council corruption storyline with people selling fake land. Yeah. And it's a bit where he's almost run over by a steamroller. And it's sort of just, he realises that it's all... Forget about it, it's... It's Chinatown. Yeah. Like, just, just walk away. And I think that's that's probably the moral of all of these stories. Is yeah. That even though, I think it's directly in reaction to somebody saying, all it takes for people to triumph is a good man to do nothing. Mm. When, like, a sort of, a good man, like a Philip Marlowe, will sort of wade into hell and then realises it's futile. Yep. And then gives up. And if he happens to save one life from this mire, then it's a bittersweet yeah. At least, as opposed to purely bitter ending, talking but often about, it is yeah. just bitter. Talking about classism again, though, like in these ones, you sort of have the the working class hero and the villains are quite often one uh, percent mm. very wealthy business moguls or local politicians or drug kingpins, and they're looking at the protagonist like he's a sort of an idiot. Yeah, like what are you doing here? I'm trying to run my my completely legitimate business fuck off good link between the two john houston who directed maltese falcon i think yeah. is that character in chinatown he plays it oh so he does yeah that the potentially the most evil character ever put on screen yeah is that guy in chinatown his name completely slips my mind and again you don't you don't get a he does almost the same as gutman does in maltese falcon which is just like Hello, I know you're investigating me, but shut up. Shut up. Take your money. Take like take this massive bribe yep. and just pretend you didn't say anything and stop talking. And you will glimpse what I'm up to, but you won't grasp it. Yeah. Or I will sort of take you on a sort of tour of my house and you might see something going on. Yeah. And then just enough for you to know that it's out of your way, way out of your league. You're out of your depth, yeah. 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 And I think there's always there's always that part where the local police are like, damn it, damn it, Marlo. <laughs> What are you doing here? You're not allowed to cover crime scenes anymore. The police are hilarious in this because one of them always wants to kick the shit out of Sam Spade <laughs> yeah. and the other one is like, noir, come on, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the popularity and rise of noir cinema is attributed to, among other things, 
a new cynicism towards the colourful, cheery and innocent movies of the past, which now were beginning to ring a little hollow in a post-war, post-depression America. I love Golden Age detective fiction. Um, mm. American and British versions, both. The things that are being written around the same time were Agatha Christie mm-hmm. was active, Dorothy L. Sayers, um, some of the ones that have fallen more off of mainstream attention, the ones that would have been famous, like the ones that have been published in the you know, the British Library crime collection. Mm. All these things that have completely lapsed out of copyright and everything because nobody was reading them anymore. Because I think for a good 40 or 50 years, the only, the only ones people would really ever read were the famous ones. Mm. You'd have your Hammets and you'd have your Christie's and your Chandler's and stuff. But no, there was a whole world of like sort of golden age crime and they're all very tropey in the sense that in the same way that I guess nowadays we're sort of obsessed with sort of the in the true crime way sort of forensics and the science of stuff mm. back then everyone was sort of enamored with the idea of sort of logical deduction the idea that you could sit in your cozy chair and link all of the connections and solve the mystery and sit yeah. everybody down in the drawing room and you know I'm completely thinking about murder on the orient express right mm. now. but the british crime writing wasn't as noir americans i think invented noir mm. american writers like chandler really nailed it in the sense that it's almost too dramatic where the way that they talk and the way that the way <laughs> the way the way that los angeles is described in the chandler books yeah it's always like it's a huge sweating monster that's just going to yeah devour you like he looks out of his window and he sees like a child getting mugged and he's just like oh it's just another day just another day, just another day on the street. los angeles shit <laughs> it was a baking hot los angeles day. <laughs> yeah just describing the sweat patch on his back like that the seagulls were raping each other <laughs> <laughs> i could see six bodies washing up on the beach from my window alone Six more investigations I wouldn't follow. Six more investigations I'd get too too drunk to solve. Until a fruity dame walked in. <laughs> I nipped into a, a local pharmacy to use their phone and have a coffee. <laughs> That's a big thing. Mm. Being able to buy a coffee and use the telephone in a pharmacy. There's also, now that you say that, the the, the jump seems to be a bit kind of uh, of a class thing. Like Poirot and um, Marple and Sherlock Holmes. It's all very... All the crimes are quite upper class I would love to read an essay on the, the classist nature of Crime. British detective but you're right like it's all you know gather everyone in the drawing room and let me show how smart I am and often often the, the murderer stands up I mean often they're like a bit Scooby Doo yeah. This time I'm the one to bring up Scooby Doo, <laughs> <laughs> and like I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you Mr Poirot and other times they are like congratulations Miss Marple You've, you've filed me. I'll happily go to jail. You've sent me to the gallows. Um, whereas noir is um, scum rubbing neck with... No, no, just like gleefully, like gutter. Well, I think cause the, like uh, I'm down on my luck and so is this guy. Well, These guys act like animals. And he's just like, and I'm barely better than them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Because I think all of the, all the detectives in the American stories are all sort of disgraced policemen. Yeah. Well, they were too drunk or too too good yep. for the force and then they sort of wallowed for 20 years and then you... Too wild. Too wild. You're a loose cannon, Marlow. Yeah. It's your damn good cop. The, um... I, I always end up talking about... You're a lethal weapon. 
You're a lethal weapon too. <laughs> Raymond Chandler said Hammett wrote stories for people who were not afraid of the seamy side of things. They lived there. Violence did not dismay them, it was right down their street. Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse, and with the means at hand, not hand-wrought dueling pistols, curare, and tropical fish. He put these people down on paper as they were, and he made them talk and think in the language they customarily used for these purposes. And there's also something, like, something you notice about British detective fiction is that the detective character... Um, Above it all, and especially above sex. Yes. Miss Marple is an old woman. Poirot is a robot. Asexual. Sherlock Holmes is sort of so much of a genius that he has that one big romantic fling, but, you know, God forbid he gets involved with anything else. But he only is so in love with her because she might actually be smarter than him. Exactly, yeah. So it's a purely mental sort of attraction. Whereas Sam Spade fucks everything that comes close. And uh, Philip, Philip Marlowe has sort of really sad affairs with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> doomed to fail because you know they're all also deeply sad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're broken as really as much as he is. But in Maltese Falcon, he at one point gets the character who we're always supposed to be going back and forth between thinking that she's legit or a complete liar. Um, both of which are immediately on the cards as soon as she walks in. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's basically... It's as soon as she walks in, you're like, idea. yeah, she, she's probably lying. But, oh, is she? But, oh, no, no, yeah, she is. But he gets her to strip naked, mm-hmm. pretty much at gunpoint, um, yeah, in, order, in order to make sure that she's not carrying... I can't remember what he thinks she might be carrying. But I, I was just reading something about um, one of the earlier films than the uh, John Huston one. Um, actually depicted that. Obviously, they didn't have an actress no, stripping, uh, but they they sh- he's, he's they showed an actress that was, and they depicted an actress sh- stripping without like Which showing anything, any bits. No, exactly. Um, I assume that doesn't happen in the Bogart no. version. No, there is um, there's an there's, there's, there's an analog to that scene, but not a scene. Oh, okay. But yeah, there's um, you're right. It's definitely more more violent, more sexual. Yeah. Um, if drugs are ever mentioned at all in British crime fiction, it's somebody's a sort of hopeless addict. Yeah. And they're the sort of black sheep of their family and all that stuff. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's Cousin Percy. He's he's on the cocaine. And, you know, <laughs> but in... The hashish. The hashish. But in all of the... In the Hammett, and it's, everybody's... It's just, it's just a wash. Yeah. So there's an epidemic going on. Yeah. Everyone's on the horse. The, the, although the, the similarity is that the British ones and American ones are all they're all private. They're not employed. They might cooperate occasionally with Scotland it's Yard. So, well, it's because that's that's where it's where sort of the Prairos and the Marples fall down. So if you read them all in a row, you get the impression that Hercule Poirot is a cursed object. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> everywhere he goes. Yeah, but in um, in the American ones, they are they've taken on they're not they're not sort of creating these events by their presence yeah often they turn up and they're already weeks late and all the evidence is gone stuff like that whereas Poirot he's always been oh it's a, a friend he made at some point yeah just like when every time he meets anyone new someone dies yeah there's all these people who sort of bring him over for dinner or to stay over for a night or something they, they gotta know they you, gotta know you know what someone should write an alternate history of Hercule Poirot where he does it all well, have you seen? He, that? he kills them all. I don't want to give too much away, but have you seen the new adaptation? No. 
there was a new adaptation with um, uh, uh, John Malkovich playing mm. Poirot. It was a last Christmas. It was a two or three parter. The idea is basically, what if Poirot faked it? Or what killed them all? Not killed them all, but he sort of sort of stumbled onto the answer or took credit for other people's work. And it's just yeah, there's layers. So I think there is definitely mileage in sort of unseating these sort of perfect detectives on their pedestals and shaking them around a little bit. Yeah. But. And then on the other hand, you want the private detective to be ahead of the state. That seems like... It's a clever slave stupid master type yeah. storytelling again. But you, you want you want the authority to be embarrassed and you want your appearance yeah. to be the underdog. Exactly. Get it right. But in the in noir, they rarely get it right. Mm. They rarely ever even see the solution until it's too late. Where somebody's already the person they're trying to protect is already dead, or the money's gone, or the drugs have been sold to the children, or yeah, you know, yeah, we should probably maybe talk a little bit more about the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, let's. Uh, How was it? How was it written? Did you enjoy the the style? Definitely. Um, Trying to work out what Sam Spade's deal deal is is the whole story, really. With Marlowe, it's much more. He's disorientated, but you can see what's keeping him interested. Yeah. Whereas with Sam Spade, it's almost like... Why are you still here? Well, his partner gets killed. He visits the body and his so cousin give a fuck. Blast, yeah. um, he turns out he's having an affair with his partner's wife, but doesn't give a fuck about her. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> she tries to visit him and call him about like what happened to Archer. Him. And he's like, oh, will you yeah. piss off? Um, the girl comes to visit him. He's sexually attracted to her, but like not very... Yeah. Like he doesn't, he he doesn't seem that fussed. Um, he seems to want the money, yeah. but he also seems quite willing to give up the whole case and and abandon the money. Yeah. Couldn't care less about Gutman's story about the Maltese Falcon. The only sort of suggestion we get that he's really interested in the case is his quiet smoking and drinking. Mm. That that sort of takes the place of he sat and thought for hours. Yeah, there's um. Or, you know, here's what he was... Here's the, th- here's the theory he was thinking or through. detective story, there is not a lot of detecting. Not, mm. not a lot of detective work. It's not a lot of putting the pieces together. Or there's not even really the opportunity for you to do it yourself. It's not that kind of story. You know, I think it's very, very stylishly written. And it's got all the hallmarks of noir. It's got your sort of tortured, overwrought metaphors and your, mm. your sort of curt sentences and dialogue. What's going on with Joel Cairo, do you think? Well, I think if you were to look at the that particular character, the particular actor they got to play him, plays the sort of sort of pathetic, pathetic evil, mm. where it's not sort of like Gutman is sort of like powerful evil. You've got pathetic evil. You've got like 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 the weasel. Basically. Yeah, I think that's probably more like his role in the story mm. to be just a kind of because you know, he's not really much opposition to character like Sam Spade who doesn't who only sort of really stops when somebody larger than him gets in the way well he beats up Joel Cairo yeah. twice I think yeah. <laughs> so, no. so no I don't know I don't know what Hamlet was trying to say with that character but I don't know if they're don't, I don't know what their actual purpose to, well the, nothing really has a purpose to the story because the story is mm. the story sort of exists in a vacuum and all these characters are just sort of battering against it yeah, th- at the end, it's sort of like, I'm not going to focus on that web too much. It's a bit too dark. <laughs> too much, yeah. A bit too much content here. I'm going to call it somewhere else. Yeah. But you're right. That I think that is a hallmark of noir. It's someone backing off from like, out, out my depth, out my depth. Yeah. 
or making the mistake of going in and then getting punished for it. Yeah. But the detective always ends up spat out back where he started. Or sometimes it's even worse. Yeah. Although I think he's a few quid up at the end. He's a few quid up. He doesn't really know what's happened. It's not quite like the end of Chinatown. Did you know that the prop Ooh. Maltese Falcon from the Maltese Falcon yeah. sold for four million dollars? <laughs> like it's uh, I don't know some someone someone bought it for That's fantastic four point one million dollars. The prop. And I bet you there's a whole intrigue behind the scenes yeah. about who's, who gets Well, no, I, well, no one knows if there's anything under all of that black, whatever it is on top. Alright, find out who it is. The heist. heist the first eerie this sponsored heist. heist. <laughs> cool. Alright, well, um, let's do Chandler. Let's do Chandler. Oh, as we've said as from a year. How many episodes have we ended with that? Yeah, no, but um, we've set ourselves up beautifully now. Yeah. Let's do it. Thank you very much for listening to Ear Read This. We will be back uh, shortly with a uh, Foul Papers episode. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving us a, a positive review on iTunes, um, checking out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash This, and keeping in touch on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, which is at Ear Read This for all of them. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, happy reading.